Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. President Harry Truman famously had a sign on his desk that read, The Buck Stops Here. It was an acknowledgement that he was ultimately responsible for the actions of his administration. Chief medical officers can relate to Harry Truman's position. Being a CMO comes with significant responsibilities. My guest today believes being a chief medical officer is the best job in medicine. He's about to defend that position while offering advice to current and future CMOs. Next on Sound Practice. My guest today is Mark Olzik. He's an emergency medicine physician with deep experience as an administrator. Mark is the author of the newly published The Chief Medical Officer's Essential Guidebook. Dr. Mark Olzik, welcome to Sound Practice. Uh, Thank you very much. It's a joy to be here. As you know, this is the podcast of the American Association for Physician Leadership. So before we talk about your new book, can you please tell me about your career path? Uh, well, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm board certified in emergency medicine. Um, I grew up in New Jersey and uh, went to school in New Jersey, New York City. And uh, to pay for med school, I joined the U.S. Navy. So um, it's been about uh, eight and a half years in San Diego and overseas with the, uh, with the Marines, which was uh, very much an education in itself. Uh, and then I came back and ran uh, the emergency department at uh, Great Lakes, um, and that whetted my interest for, uh, well, to become a better administrator since I found myself in charge of personnel and equipment. So I got my MBA. Um, and then I just continued to get other certifications and took other opportunities for training along the way. Um, I uh, worked in the VA for a while as the uh, chief of emergency medicine, then as a deputy chief of staff. I uh, went to the central office in Washington, D.C., and then for the last uh, almost 10 years, I've been the chief medical officer at Carroll Hospital in Westminster, Maryland. Excellent. Let's talk about your book, The Chief mm. Medical Officer's Essential Guidebook. Yeah. Why'd you, why'd you write it? Uh, yeah, I think everybody says I should write a book uh, about their experiences um, from time to time. Uh, And I thought I had a lot of stories and anecdotes and I could easily fill a book. But when it comes to actually putting pen to paper, uh, you find that um, uh, you might not, you might need to reach out to others, but uh, the, the, the germ for the, um, for the book uh, came about when uh, a colleague became a chief medical officer. And uh, I must've given him, a top 10 list or, you know, a little um, guidance of, of things to do and things not to do. Um, and then about, I don't know, a year later, he asked me for that list again. I totally forgot. I even came up with it and I looked and couldn't find anything. So I thought, you know what, I'll just go on Amazon. I'll, I'll buy him a CMO primer, you know, and uh, I looked around and just didn't see anything. And I thought, well, this might be crazy, but maybe um, I can get some folks together and we can share our stories and um, other people could benefit from our experience. And uh, that's that's how we got started. I met uh, Nancy Collins, 
who's the publisher from AAPL. And uh, we got the ball rolling. And within, uh, within a year, the book got published. Well, it's a, it's a great, great book. I'm interested, what makes a good chief medical officer? Um, curiosity, uh, advocacy uh, for, the, for the team. And that team uh, can be defined in different ways. It can be just the, the medical staff. It can be um, the hospital associates more largely. Um, and certainly can include the, the patients and, and the community at large, and the, the folks that we serve. Um, it takes humility. Uh, every two weeks, we have an orientation for, for new associates. And uh, I tell them that medicine, healthcare is uh, a calling unlike any other. We see people at the highest points in their life and at the lowest. We take care of them when they're being born and when they're dying. We take care of them when, when no one else is able to take care of them. And we do so regardless of their shape, size, color, ability to pay, ability to communicate or be grateful. And uh, that just shows the, the awesome responsibility society has given us. And we have to, uh, we have to be humble you know, in order to really uh, exercise that, that authority. Uh, and we have to be curious, we have to be advocates. And uh, a good chief medical officer is somebody who understands the importance of relationships, uh, knows the fundamentals of the job, you know, as regards uh, in regards to quality and safety and patient experience and contracting and all those sorts of things, but is, is somebody who always wants to learn more, knows that they don't understand everything and they, they certainly can't understand everything or do everything. And that's why they have to build a, a team around them um, to, and, and to surround themselves with, with folks who are smarter and more capable and, and uh, more experienced, but just as passionate about, uh, about patient care and healthcare. Sometimes we learn from the mistakes of others. Your book has some great anecdotes. <laughs> Does one come to mind? Oh, there's a, there's a lot to come to mind. Um, and one of the, one of the quotes early on is I say, you know, you, life's too short to learn from your own mistakes. It's better to learn from everybody else's mistakes. Um, and that's why I invited uh, a whole host of uh, contributors and, uh, and authors. Um, yeah. One of my, my favorite anecdotes uh, comes to mind. I was working in the VA and um I didn't know what compensation and pension was. It's an extremely important function uh, in the VA. It's where you evalu evaluate veterans uh, for service-connected injuries or um, ailments they might have sustained, you know, while on active duty. Uh, and the the healthcare administration does so for the the benefits administration. Um, but one day I learned that I was in charge of it because we were. Um, not performing very well. And I didn't know the, the least little thing about the procedures and the protocols. Um, so I just simply drove down to where um, the exams were being conducted and just asked the staff, you know, and I said, you know, how can we do better? And they really knew. Uh, and it was simple things. Um, you know, one lady who did most of the processing said, gee, if I just had a fax machine in my office, you know, she was unable to walk down the hallway. 
And so she would only do it once a day. She said, if I had a fax machine in my office, I could process, I could cut off a couple of days. Or if they would just give me some stamps, like we talking about. Well, we, we relied on inter-office inter couriers to get you know the papers and the forms and the mailings from, from that location and then get mailed at. If we had our own stamps, you know, we could save three days. Um, and these were small, simple things, but one by one, listening to the folks who actually did the job day in and day out and celebrating the small victories, you know, we went from a turnaround time of 45 days past the desired 30 days into single digits. And so we were in the top three um, in the country. Uh, and, and it just shows that you don't always need a consultant. You don't need to have some, you know, fancy uh, strategy. You just need to listen to the to the people. Um, be curious, be humble, uh, and ask them what in their daily experience and uh, in, 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 in their own judgment could help them out. And, uh, and then just be willing to give it a try. Not everything will succeed, but I think empowering the team and, and showing that you really uh, have their back and are willing to um, – Think serious their suggestions is very very energizing and actually quite refreshing, and um, in many cases it, it'll pay it'll pay dividends. It's a good it's a good point. You know we're we're coming off of a pandemic and many healthcare systems are chronically understaffed. Mm -hmm. Being a CMO in recent years has certainly not been easy. How have CMOs been impacted? Oh, yeah, it's it, it has changed. Uh, you know, COVID was was scary. Um, it was we didn't know what to expect at the very beginning. Um, in some ways, um, it was exhilarating because we had to invent policies and procedures and and do things that um, we never anticipated. And uh, you know, the the entire world was. Well, you, you saw that people would come out of New York City and they would, you know, uh, bang pots and pans and cheer for the healthcare workers. That was really rewarding. A lot of clinicians were given more autonomy and more responsibility than before. And it was a lot of work, but at the same time, it was really energizing. Um, now that we're coming off of that, uh, a lot of the folks that were getting close to retiring or were just thinking about it said, okay, that took the last bit of energy I really had, and, and now it's time for me to to retire or try something different or to cut back. So we're we're seeing that reduction in the workforce. At the same time, we saw a lot of pent up demand um, from patients, increasing our volume, or folks who had stayed away from healthcare um, because you know because of the pandemic and all the myriad reasons why they couldn't access. Um, you know, their providers or a healthcare system. Uh, and they might have gotten worse. Their chronic diseases might have been less than optimally treated. So they came in with more complications and certainly the patients with long COVID. So, you know, a decrement in the in the experienced workers, uh, an increase in the in the demand. Um, and then just uh, uncertainty about the future. So we're we're seeing all that come together and uh, is a uh, uh, really unanticipated force in, in just the last year or so. So we're we're trying to figure out how to 
keep clinicians from from losing heart. You can say, you know, prevent them from getting burned out, but to make make the job uh, as exhilarating or as rewarding as it had been in the past, um, while at the same time trying to educate patients and reduce readmissions, reduce complications. Um, and all of this is is in the face of um, tighter budgets, more financial constraints. So it's uh, every day is brings a new challenge. And you know the chief medical officer, um, I describe as a bridge builder. They're the the clinician who can translate what the financial officer or the chief executive officer or the board or even the community uh, is trying to say into um, a language that the clinicians can understand and then vice versa, you know, taking what the clinicians uh, are voicing and their concerns and their, uh, their fears, their, um, uh, their challenges and, and being the bridge builder or the translator to the, the other parties I mentioned. So you're, you're constantly uh, relaying communications, making connections, trying to, um, you know, trying to be an interpreter for for parties who don't always see eye to eye or don't always uh, communicate on a daily basis, so it's 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 rewarding. Um, but as you said, yes, it has been challenging. Well, in the preface to the chief medical officer's essential guidebook, uh, you write that all success depends upon alliances and partnerships. So it's mm-hmm. essential to hear from our counterparts, bosses, vendors, and clients. How do you go about building these alliances? I find that the uh, room in the hospital where I gained the most insight or have gained the most insight over the past decade is the physician's lounge. Sometimes I'll just go in there and just uh, be a fly on the wall. I hate to say I'm an eavesdropper, but I'll, you know, various conversations take place um, and people let their guard down. And, and you can just um, hear folks express um, in, in an informal setting, in their own words, what's going on. Uh, so, you know, taking that to the next level, just let people um, talk. Uh, you know, I think it's one of the philosophers or, or early psychologists that said, you know, life is nothing more than a battle for the ears of others. So everybody wants to tell their story. And, and you know, there's no sweeter word than someone's own name. So, um, you know, allowing someone to talk and then, uh, you know, showing that you're listening, actively listening and, and trying to understand um, makes a huge difference. Uh, but to be able to get to that level, you have to have a lot of contact. Uh, very few people are going to just open up on the very first encounter. So you have to become familiar with folks and you know you make small talk you make gestures that bring them some food or or you know tell a joke or or let your own guard down um so making frequent rounds in the hospital um you know participating sometimes in extracurricular activities whether it's a, a meal or uh you know an event or or something off campus uh and then just building those bonds and then letting people talk. And then when they do express a concern, uh, use whatever authority or power you have to, to address that concern and then get back to them. So um, follow-up is incredibly important. Um, in the book, I talk about all the different relationships uh, that, that someone has. Uh, and I, I 
wanted to make sure we didn't just get the CMO's perspective on their counterparts. I wanted the counterparts perspective on the CMO. So um, actually I used a framework from an old book about 1900 years ago, you know, Plutarch's uh, Parallel Lives. You know, he would compare one figure from Greek history to one from Roman history. And I said, I, I, that's what I want. I want parallel lives. I want what the CMO thinks about and, um, uh, and, and how they interact with the CEO. But I also want the CEO to talk about how they see the CMO and, and their role and how they interact with them. The same thing for the chief nursing officer, chief financial officer, board member, uh, president of the medical staff. So we have this parallel structure. And that was really the, the heart of the book, the, the relationships. Very nice. Um, it's it's not often that I I hear Plutarch mentioned <laughs> on this on this podcast. You, uh, sir, are in the right place. Uh, thanks for thanks for that uh, that sure. reference. Um, so over the the course of your career, you, you must have noticed that uh, physicians have have changed, mm-hmm. and how does that impact being a chief medical officer? In my experience here, when I first got to this hospital. Um, about one third of the medical staff were contractors, vendors. Uh, so we would contract with a company, an agency, and uh, they would you know, staff whatever area we needed. About one third were employees of the hospital and about one third were independent. And those used to be the, the majority of providers you know, decades and decades ago. That was, uh, you know, that was the, uh, the, the older breed. Uh, a lot of the primary care providers would have an office in the community. They would come in, they would make rounds on their patients or for other physicians they would cover for in the hospital and see their patients. And then they would go back out to their practice and they would come back to the hospital at the end of the day. Um, yeah, and they were some of the um, most dedicated and hardworking uh, physicians, just in terms of the hours of the day. Some would work 16, 18 hour days. And, and that's what they grew up doing. That's what they um, expected to do. And sometimes they sacrificed uh, what we now call a work-life balance. Um, and they were the ones who actually participated uh, very passionately in hospital politics, you know, attending um, medical staff meetings. Um, but the flip side is they weren't always aligned with with hospital goals. Um, they weren't opposed to them, but you know we were working in parallel, uh, not under the under the same tent because the incentives were not common. Um, and and so there, you know, at times there could have been a little bit of friction, but uh, often the the interplay was uh, it was dynamic and it could be very beneficial. Uh, but in order to uh, really tackle the EMR and, and all of the regulations, uh, physicians found that they really needed to, if they wanted to work in the hospital, they had to work only in the hospital. It was too hard to have a foot in both canoes, inpatient and outpatient. Um, so we've, you know, we've seen the rise of hospitalists who only work in, in the hospital. Um, and their goals are, are given to them by you know, the, the contractor. Um, by the you know the the um, entity that you know sets up the contract, so the hospital will say, you know, readmissions are important, discharges before noon are or in part are important, uh, and we're going to incentivize you or disincentivize you based on the on your performance. 
Um, so uh, I think we've we've achieved good results uh, in total over the years. But um, I have seen those physicians uh, with an attitude less passionate about hospital politics, more of I'm going to come to work, I'm going to do what's expected, I'm going to do it well, but then I'm going to go home. So we've seen the the attendance in medical uh, staff quarterly meetings uh, go down. There, there are still some who are very involved, very passionate about um, the hospital governance and, and uh, executive committee of the medical staff structure. But I guess to paint with a very, very broad brush, we've seen, you know, the the change from independent physicians to those who are contracted are or are employed and um, kind of a decrease in, in the involvement um, of that latter group in a lot of the things that the uh, the older physicians had traditionally been more involved in. So it's um you know it it's 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 a it's a it's a distinction. I don't think that it's it's better or worse, but it's a, it's an observation that I make, and uh, I think others have as well. It also strikes me that maybe things have changed with the, not just with physicians, but the general public. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. general public seems less trustful and satisfied mm -hmm. with healthcare than they were thirty or forty years ago. Why is that? <laughs> well, that's a big topic. I, I think you can't ignore the the elephant in the room, and that's you know uh, the recent pandemic, and there was a lot of confusion and a lot of um, a lot of voices with um, varied opinions, and that and that can be confusing. Um, patients, uh, consumers, the general populace um, have a lot more access to medical knowledge than than ever before. Um, you know, as you say, you know, 30, 40 years ago, there wasn't the internet available. Uh, they they had to rely on a healthcare professional. Now, a healthcare professional might just be one more voice, you know, crying out in in, in the forest. So I think that does confuse the issue. Um, certainly, patients on average have gotten older. They've had more chronic. Diseases, so they come in with, um, you know, they come they come in with with more complexity than ever, um, and I think that um, uh, medicine is it's moving to a value based care. We're we're very much interested in results now, and looking to longitudinal care and keeping people healthier. Um, but I don't think that we've fully moved on to. Um, uh, full prevention um, and using some of the almost common sense or uh, actually historically tried and true methods. And, and you know, so physicians, you know, we were sometimes constrained by, by time. Um, so we rely a lot on pharmacotherapy or, or consultations to others. Um, it would be great if we had the, the time or we had the manpower to really educate patients and to instruct them on nutrition and the importance of, of exercise. We know as you get older, you lose muscle mass, you lose coordination. So the more muscle, the more strength, the more power you can achieve as early as possible in life, the more of a reserve that you have. So we, we, you know, we see older folks, they come into the hospital 
Um, and, uh, you know, we, we take care of their acute event, but I'm not sure we do a great job yet uh, of preventing readmission or, or really setting them up to get healthier or stay healthier, because that involves um, tackling a lot of issues, whether it's, um, you know, uh, socioeconomics, um, uh, a lot of other uh, influences on healthcare, but certainly nutrition, exercise, you know, well-being, de-stressing. So we, we want to increase the people's health span as much as their, their lifespan. Um, and that's going to take, uh, that's going to take new thinking. Uh, a lot of us are looking into that, but I think the patients are, are a little bit ahead of us. They, they really want that. And it, it takes a while for the, you know, the, the battleship that is, uh, you know, hospital healthcare to begin to turn. Uh, especially, as I mentioned, we're constrained by by finances and by manpower and by all the other challenges. So there's, you know, the good news is that there's plenty of opportunity um, and there's also a lot of challenges. So it's an exciting time to be in medicine. Absolutely. If I wanted to evaluate the quality of a chief medical officer, what metrics should I use? Oof. I, I would say that you would need to um, do a 360 evaluation, but uh, an in-depth one of everybody they work with. So I wouldn't just look at you know the metrics of the hospital because the chief medical officer can can be a force multiplier, but certainly is not the only one responsible for all those metrics. Um, you know, and if they're good, we like to take credit for them uh, to be sure, but. More importantly, as I mentioned, it's it's all about relationships. So you need to ask all of the service chiefs, the the, the head of credentialing, the head of uh, the bylaws committee, uh, the president of the medical staff, as well as the chief nursing officer, the CEO, um, the other C-suite executives, um, and then all of the the medical staff and and the hospital associates. You know, what what do you think about this person? Do they do they make you feel unique, like an individual? Do they make you feel valued? Do, do you look forward to seeing um, that CMO, that person? Um, because when they speak, uh, if they treat you with respect and, and, and you really believe that you know, you're on the same team as they are, um, you're much more likely to believe what they say or to um, understand the goals that they're trying to you know, achieve. So I think it, it's a little bit harder. There's not a uh, an easy metric you could apply, but you would need to to ask um, everybody they come in contact with um, if there's somebody who treats uh, their colleagues and their subordinates and uh, um, the staff and the patients with with respect and with humility and with curiosity. Excellent. Is our time here come comes to an end? I wanted yeah. to ask you about a bold statement that you make in your book. Mm -hmm. Here it is. Okay. Being a CMO is the best job in medicine. Mm -hmm. All right. Defend it. <laughs> it, it is. Um, I love being a medical student because I got to rotate in every specialty. You know, I spent a month in pediatrics and a month in medicine, a month in surgery. Um, and then uh, as an emergency medicine resident, I got to do some of that. Um, 
But for most physicians, after you've completed your residency, um, you live in one area. Like the radiologists tend to live in a dark room looking at images. The pathologist lives in the in the laboratory looking at slides and overseeing the blood bank. And you know, they, they all find that very rewarding, of course. Um, but they don't get the opportunity to see the rest of the hospital interact with all of their other colleagues in the House of Medicine. Um, so I've actually taken the president of the medical staff the last couple of terms, and we've done uh, field trips, you know, and I took our emergency medicine president up to the uh, behavioral health unit. He'd never been inside. In fact, he's never seen the radiology reading room, but he talks to the radiologist every day. As chief medical officer, I'm basically given um, a universal passport and a visa to go anywhere I want to in the hospital. If I want to go observe a surgery, I can do that. If I want to go into the family birthplace and and uh, you know see what's happening there, I mean I'm not going to go into a delivery, but you know I can just I, I can go into the family birthplace and get a feeling for the for the morale of the staff. I can wander through the emergency department. Um, I can go anywhere in the hospital, including the the boardroom, um, the boiler room. Um, you know, walk the hallways. You know, talk to the maintenance staff. Um, you know, the 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 environmental services and the food workers and the transporters probably spend more time with patients than the clinicians do, and they have valuable insights. Um, and they know the hospital inside and out. And as the CMO, you know, I I feel like I can talk to anybody. So I get to interact with, um, you know, everyone in in the hospital, listen to their stories, which I find endlessly fascinating. And that's a privilege. And um, that's why it's the best job in the hospital. You've convinced me. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) The the book, which is an excellent read and um, one of the best examples of uh, helping out a friend that I've ever heard is the Mm. chief medical officer's essential guidebook. Um, Mark, uh, uh, I really appreciate your your time. My guest has been Mark Olzik. Thank you so much, doctor. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. My thanks to Mark Olzik. His new book, The Chief Medical Officer's Essential Guidebook, is a must read for CMOs. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Pat is holy cow, but man Robin.